Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. In the 1970s, the architecturally trained artist Gordon Mata Clark coined the term anarchitecture, a combination of the words anarchy and architecture, to describe his practice where he was cutting into existing buildings, creating these voids and gaps. And for a long time, when I heard that term anarchitecture, I associated it only with Mata Clark. That all changed, however, while I was reading Aaron Betsky's fascinating new book, The Monster Leviathan and Architecture. In the book, Aaron adopts this term, which he describes as a possible architecture, an analogous architecture, an architecture of anarchy, to create this sort of collaged revisionist history of architecture. And architecture, as opposed to architecture, then proposes or imagines architecture that fights rather than affirms order and power, and that it represents or enables self-organizing and free communities. This, for me, raises all sorts of questions about the nature of building and design and how we relate to and make sense of the world and how we can, or even if we should, find ways to actualize these and architectures. So I invited Aaron on the show to talk through these big ideas. We talk about an architecture, what it is and why it probably can't be realized. We talk about architecture as a critique of power and how an architecture could also be seen as a sort of modernist project. But we also talk about Aaron's interesting career. He's trained as an architect, but has spent his career writing and curating and leading institutions. He was most recently the director of Virginia Tech School of Architecture and Design, where he also served as a professor. Before that, he was the president and the dean of the School of Architecture at Taliesin, and he was the director of the Cincinnati Art Museum, director of the Netherlands Architecture Institute, and a curator at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. There's a lot in this conversation that I found myself thinking about long after the conversation wrapped up, and I hope that you find it as fascinating as I did. If you liked this episode and what we do here at Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon supporters get bonus interviews, full transcripts of every episode, and an exclusive monthly newsletter. All of this helps keep the show free for everyone all the time. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and to help support the show. Thanks so much for listening. And here is my conversation with Aaron Betsky. Let's start here. Can you, um, <laughs> can you, can you describe for me or, or tell me what, what the monster Leviathan is? Uh, the elevator uh, pitch. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the book is a collage of images, both uh, those produced in or for architecture and poems, uh, paintings, bits of philosophy that together try to sketch out other possible worlds and have done so for the last century or so. 
the idea is that we realized um, towards the end of the first cycle of the Industrial Revolution that utopia wasn't going to get us anywhere. It was unbuildable, unmakeable, and if it was made, it was horrible. Dystopia was a warning that we obviously didn't want to follow. So what other possibilities were there? And the people that interest me are those who began to sense that there might be other possible worlds already inherent, already present in the monster Leviathan, which is both the monster of the city, the modern metropolis, and is the giant new manufacturing plants and is some form of Frankenstein's monster that is a human body and an organic being all rolled into one, that monster Leviathan has the potential of, of being that other world. And I tried to show in this book how uh, architects and people interested in architecture have tried to further develop, throw up, um, make more expressive that monster Leviathan and how people have reacted to that uh, within the discipline. I, I love that you, you talked about this as sort of a, this like parallel world or other world. Cause when I was reading the book and the subtitle of the book, we should say is an architecture, which is a term that I maybe naively had only ever really associated with Gordon Mataclark, who you talk about a little bit in the book, but he's really a minor character sort of, in your, he's a minor character in your book, I think, compared right. to, to this range of, of people that you're sort of talking about. And I, you know, I sort of halfway through sort of realized or started to think about this book as like a revisionist history of architecture thinking. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And so could you talk about that word and architecture and, and Matt Clark's relationship to that word and then your usage of that word, which is a much broader sort of definition, I think, than we originally think of it as? Sure. Um, and architecture was, in fact, as far as we know, coined by Gordon Mother Clark. We haven't been able to find any sources he had for it. So here is this guy who graduated from Cornell Architecture, came to New York, uh, became an artist, uh, of course, came from a great family of artists, and developed this phrase that indicates that it is a possible architecture. Because remember, in English, there is only the architecture. There is no the architecture or unarchitecture. Uh, if you try mm. to say the architecture or unarchitecture in Microsoft Word, it will very quickly give you that dreaded little blue squiggle. Right. Um, so he was interested in an architecture, which would be a broader term, something that would escape from the discipline, but that also would be analogous. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be something written over the skin of buildings. And also that would be anarchic, or that would be a form of anarchism, because from a political and social standpoint, a lot of his actions and artwork were very much in the tradition of that kind of explosion of the 10th of a second, which is a phrase that I pick up from Walter Benjamin mm -hmm. in the book. Interestingly enough, I came across the phrase um, 
from the architect Lemius Woods. I knew about Gordon Mother Clark mm. uh, because when I started working for Frank Gehry in 1985 and asked him who his favorite architect was, he said Gordon Mother Clark. Oh, uh, interesting. Later on, I said, I reminded him of that uh, a few years later. And he said, oh, well, actually, my favorite architect is Robert Ryman, the painter who makes all white canvases, right. which I thought was a very clever uh, riposte <laughs> to his own cleverness. Um, but Lebius Woods had picked up on this phrase um, in what he called his research Institute for Experimental Architecture. Mm -hmm. And if... I was inspired by anything uh, in the initial establishment of the ideas that became this book. It was working with and following Levius Woods and this notion of this mythical other place that might exist under Berlin in the unused S-Bahns or U-Bahns or might be floating somewhere around Paris, but we can't see it or might happen in the future that erupts wherever war breaks out that is really uh, something that needs to be drawn now quite literally by and through architecture. And I was looking at that kind of work right when I was asked to teach a set of theory courses at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, uh, which really became the genesis for, for this book. So I, I'm I'm wondering about this sort of expansion of the term and architecture, and and I think you know, and maybe maybe expansion is not the right word here, but I think because that term has been so tied to Matt Clark for so long, and and, and Libius Woods a, a little bit too, and you sort of use it as this lens to talk about all of these sort of interesting figures who are sort of working in the margins of architecture, maybe we could say, maybe that's the analogous architecture. I'm struggling to sort of phrase this as a question, but I'm wondering if you could sort of describe the through line of, of what a possible architecture looks like. I, I don't think there really is a through line. Okay. Uh, this is not a quest and there is no final solution, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is exactly the point. Uh, I mentioned when we started out that to me, it's a collage or an mm -hmm. assemblage. And that is very much the idea. Also, of course, referring to the history of collage and assemblage, which I agree with you, uh, forms an alternate history of architecture. We have been so used to the notion of architecture and design in all of its sort, including graphic and industrial design, as imposing form on inert matter, um, mm -hmm. putting order on top of disorder or the supine realities of the world. And what interests me and has come to interest me more and more is design as a hunting and gathering, as a magical transformation, as a collage of already existing found materials, forms, structures, that are somehow opened up to reveal or intimate uh, possible modes of inhabitation that are more critical and uh, more free than they might be within the strictures of architecture or design. So that is the direction in which I really took an architecture. And the work of Gordon Mother Clark 
it is rather central to this, this notion of unbuilding, of opening up, mm -hmm. of corkscrewing yourself out of the strictures of buildings that enclose us or impose themselves on us was very much at the heart of what I was looking for. Could you talk about an architecture and the ideas that you raise in this book uh, and contrast those perhaps, or, or, or talk about the relationship between these ideas with ideas of modernism? And the reason I ask you that question is because you wrote a book a couple of years ago called Making It Modern. And I was reading some interviews that you had done when that book came out. And you were talking about how modern architecture, one of the goals of modern architecture was to reflect the world that we live in to live in today. That was the, the phrase you used. Um, and that architecture is this, I'm using your, your language here. Architecture is part of the process of construction of, of this world. And I was thinking about that when I was reading the new book, because so many of these parallel architectures, these possible architectures in many ways also feel like they are making sense of the world we live in, albeit in more conceptual or abstract ways, maybe less less legitimized ways. How do you see how do you see an architecture and sort of the more modern movement uh, in parallel or in contrast with each other? Well, well, it's very astute of you to see the relationship to the making a modern book. This is certainly a continuation of those arguments. Um, but to answer your question, perhaps more directly, uh, this is a modernism. This is a form mm. of modernism. Uh, the point I'm, one of the points I'm trying to make is that it is an attempt to make sense of, uh, reflect uh, right. what modernity is. And in fact, uh, at the beginning of the book, I go back to the, the perhaps overused Marshall Berman uh, quote on uh, modernity and modernism, with modernism being everything that attempts to give shape and form or image or words to modernity, uh, that continually fluid developing state that we all live in. And for me, this is the form of modernism or the forms of modernism that interests me most, mm. which is to say those forms of modernism that, again, do not believe that you can impose a finished image, a utopian or dystopian, onto the world, make it out of what are seen as whatever the modern forms are then, whether it's glass or steel or hot type or, or plastic, um, but rather that see modernity as existing and consisting of the explosion of a tenth of a second or some of the other imagery I use and see their work as, as continuing that, of, of embodying modernity in that way. One of the little texts that I unearthed, I, I had been pointed to it way back when I was an architecture student, was this wonderful little essay written by the Japanese architect Arata Izuzaki when he was very young, in which he describes meeting uh, an old school friend who, if you keep reading, you realize is actually his alter ego. Uh, and he tells him that he's become an architect and his friend tells him that he's become a ass professional assassin. And in the end, Izuzaki merges with his alter ego, 
by seeing his work as what he calls city demolition or city right. assassination, where it's about saving the city, building modernity by opening it up. And it's the ruinous possibilities that are most interesting. I I love that story. And I think that's such a, a great encapsulation of many of the projects in the book, actually, because something I was also thinking about in, in reading the book is how many of these architects, how many of these theorists, how many of these artists, poets, you know, it's, it, it's not just architecture, as you mentioned at the beginning, were making work, were thinking about projects that were either not meant to be realized or impossible to be realized. They stayed at the paper architecture, just to, to use that term level, they stayed at the theoretical. And I'm, I'm wondering how, how important that is that these don't become real. And, and I'm, and I'm asking that thinking about this idea of an architecture and like anarchist architecture and how, how the theory, how the, the concept can be a way to fight power in a way that building might not be able to be. Absolutely. And uh, it is of vital importance that, that it is not built. Now it can be perhaps embodied in some buildings or poems, mm -hmm. um, but the point that I have made elsewhere um, is that architecture buildings are the tomb of architecture. So buildings are the tomb of architecture because architecture is not building. It is right. everything that is about building. It is the meta of building. And therefore, obviously, its most complete representation is a building. But as soon as it becomes a building, it disappears into that building on a more mm. prosaic level because of all the rules and regulations and codes, it is impossible, almost impossible these days to make good architecture out of building. So architecture that slips away, uh, that has the kind of slippery nature that the deconstructivists, for instance, mm -hmm. were so fond of, mm -hmm. um, is the kind of architecture that can become an architecture as soon as it is built it disappears. Remember that Gordon Mother Clark structures were acts of opening right. that were never meant to last, that were never meant to be built. Uh, I just visited a few days ago and posted on my Instagram uh, a, a kind of heir to that action, which is the artist Mariam Tewins, who goes to buildings that are about to be torn down, reorganizes the debris that she finds there uh, photographs them and the photographs become the work of art and then the buildings are finally torn down oh interesting it's also the other as i said this is a this is a hedgehog of a book you know it's, <laughs> yeah, it's all yeah. over the place yeah and is meant to be um i i use the work of Henri lefebvre and mm -hmm. in all of this i think i say somewhere in the book uh that I am not going to take any responsibility for misreading. Uh, <laughs> right, right. I, I, I was educated at Yale under the shoulder of, under the shadow of Ellen Bloom. So misreading is my thing. Uh, now I try to be responsible and, uh, and scholarly about my, my misreadings, but nonetheless. <laughs> right, right. so I, I use Lefebvre uh, to think about uh, the notion of living in produced space Mm. which is 
similar in its function and its effect as language and laws and all the other ways by which we create a rational society. And Lefebvre uh, groups it under the representations of space. Against that, he is interested in representation null space, which is a right. space that comes from the inside out, that is the ungrabbable space of magic um, that has to, by all accounts, uh, remain hidden. But between that, those two, uh, Lefebvre poses that there could be something that is representational begins to take form, but does never quite take form because as soon as it takes form, it is appropriate and becomes representations of space. He uh, calls it the space between the face and the mask. And that kind of glimmering, that kind of intimation, that kind of hinting is also uh, of importance to me. Uh, the idea of the veil comes up quite right. a lot in that right. reference. To me, one of the central tensions of the book um, that I feel like I can kind of, I, I want to hear you talk about a little bit more is um, architects who start in that representational space, who start at the theoretical space. And then once they start building, how they sort of lose Ooh. some of these ideas. And, you know, maybe I'm reading between the lines here, but I, I read you as being critical of this, being a little oh, bit yeah, skeptical absolutely. of this. You know, you talk about Cool House, you talk about the early Diller and Scafidio work, which I admittedly, naively, I had no idea that they were doing these sort of performance projects. I think you're the harshest on Leviskind, who you say, you know, oh, he yeah. said that building is a crime until he started building. I loved right. I loved that line. Can, can you talk about that tension and 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 maybe some of these these architects who sort of started thinking about these ideas, playing with these ideas in a conceptual space, and then what gets lost when they become, you know, the star architects or when yeah. they be, when they start building and that transition Absolutely. a little bit? I mean, I think that Dylan Scafidio, now Dylan Scafidio Renfro, have actually maintained that interest throughout their um their practice even though they're a big architecture firm with a couple hundred people right. working there uh they still engage in these kind of uh, performance pieces and uh, installations in the book i talk about uh the um wonderful i think i talk about in the book or is that my next book i think next yeah. book i talk about um the mile long opera which is this wonderful performance oh, yeah. they helped stage on the opera which was this ephemeral event that tried to sing alive the city a great example yeah. of architecture uh as as any that i can think of but th there i think there actually are two issues one is those architects who in their statement of um purpose, if you will, and what they're trying to do, make a series of assertions that indeed deny the advisability of building. And Leapskind uh, and Peter Eisman are the two clearest examples of those, at least in terms of later success. Yeah. Um, and when they then try to build uh, nonetheless, the work turns into crap 
in my humble opinion. Um, I think Eisenman held on to it for a little bit with the Wexner Center and some of that mm -hmm. early work, but the work since then is you know not really even worth talking about. Uh, and Leapskind <laughs> just keeps doing the same building over and over and comes up with a different story for it, whether it's a shopping mall or an apartment building or an office building. It's just just ridiculous. Um, but I think the more more interesting cases are cases like uh, Bernard Chumi, mm -hmm. who still mm -hmm. sees his work as a kind of event architecture, or Karl Pimmelblau, who very much believe that they are engaging in a kind of radical architecture, even when they're building the uh, headquarters for the European Bank. Um, as I said, there's two questions. One is a fundamental one, which is if you believe in uh, architecture that should not be built or architecture that should explode or be in the case of Copimbalo, a psychogram, mm -hmm. uh, an upwelling from the unconscious, then, and, and something that should burn or should be a leaping whale, those are some of the images that Copimbalo used, then how the hell do you justify making something that houses uh, is a showroom for BMWs as they yeah. also have. But the other issue is what do you do when you try to hold on to some of that criticality, but now you're a practice with several hundred people and you're doing buildings right. all over the world. Right. And almost no one has been able to answer that question. Is, is it possible? To, I mean, no. do you, you don't think it is? I don't think so. I think that some people have held on to it longer than, than others. I, for a long time, admired Herzog de Moreau mm -hmm. because they had actually set up their practice in such a way as to be self-critical and experimental. Uh, but in the last five to 10 years, they, in my opinion, have mainly uh, receded into just repeating their uh, formulas that they have been producing for a while now. Let, let me ask you the question this way, then. And, and this the is, same is true, by the way, in graphic design. That's yeah. A, yeah. Another I mean, we, yeah, we could talk about that because I, you know, and I'm sort of thinking about this in many ways through a, through a lens of graphic design, too. But I'm and, and I don't want this question to sound too crass and economic, to, to be frank. But, you know, could could these ideas um an analogous architecture, an architecture of anarchy, uh, you know, the ideas rooted in paper architecture and, you know, kind of this theoretical position. Do those have a place in more traditional practice or are they just so different that, you know, there are the there are the conceptualists and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using sort of vague language here. And then there are the the builders. Basically, I'm wondering what we can learn, you know, people who don't want to work in that space or are not working in that space. Are there things we can take from that without it just being consumed, you know, consumed by capital and becoming just a, a tool? And here again, and sorry, I'm stretching, but now I'm thinking about Cool House and I'm thinking about ammo and that research arm, which is sort of just monetizing yeah. the theory. And then that's not the same, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, it's an interesting, AMO, AMO is an interesting uh, question. 
I, I wouldn't have agreed with you that that's all they're about until recently when they started think, doing things like hire themselves out to the Saudi Arabians to come up with the hospital of the future. But they, they're, they, they certainly are a very useful research arm. I do think that there is a particular model that is not only AMO, um, and it's, it's notable that OMA, when they started growing, very cleverly realized that they needed to hive off all the weirdness that they were doing into a separate branch right? Um, because they couldn't protect it, um, even though they've continued to do, in some cases, interesting work yeah, yeah. on other level. Um, but there are also models uh, that uh, interest me, like Rotor, mm. uh, which is a firm in Belgium that engages in critical research um, I'm doing a book now with Assemble Studio mm. in London, who also do uh, many times when you go to see their built work, your first reaction is, where is it? It's right. hard to see what they did. And then the right. more you look and the more you talk to people and realize what changes they made to the community, to the environment, you realize that there is an architecture, but it is indeed slippery or difficult to find. So there are models. They are economically difficult to maintain. You need a trick to them. You need to hire yourself out as a curator or mm. find models like that. Uh, Assemble Studio uh, runs a kind of collective artist space, and that's part of what keeps them alive. Okay. Um, but it is possible. It's just I don't think possible to do it while building up an architecture office What of a traditional sort. The book talks about how this work infects or inflects practice, not how this work is practice. You you got out of practice. You studied architecture. <laughs> um, you I read an interview that you did a couple of years ago, and you said, I failed as an architect and became a suit and a critic. Someone who runs things and someone who criticizes things, those disciplines have their own meat and their own daily matter. Can can you talk to me a little bit? And and I want to just sort of go back in time for a second, then we'll work our way forward again. Talk to me a little bit about being a young architect, working for Gary, working in these other studios. While at the same time, it seems like you were teaching fairly early on, you were writing books fairly early on. Talk about this split that we're talking about in your own early career and sort of how you how you sort of made that turn fully into, in your words, become a suit and a critic. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, like, like all writers, all my books are attempts at self-justification. So <laughs> this is just another attempt at uh, justifying what I've done with my life. But look, as I also say in this book, uh, my life itself has been a kind of collage mm -hmm. uh, made up of impressions and attempts to react to modernity as I've experienced it in my particular life. Um, when I was, it started even when I was in undergraduate, where I, when I couldn't figure out what I wanted to, to do. And luckily, uh, the university came to my rescue because they recruited me for a special honors program in the humanities, mm -hmm. which was meant to be interdisciplinary uh, and was supposed to educate the best and the brightest. Um, it failed at that pretty monumentally, I would say, and was disbanded uh, a year after I graduated. But 
it's telling that the one person in my class who made something of their selves is a woman who won the Oscar for doing the music for Oh Brother, Where Out Thou. Oh, wow. So um, it sort of goes all over the place. So when I was in my senior year, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I tried to get three things. I applied to art history graduate school. I applied to architecture graduate school. And I try to get a job in broadcast news, which is what I really want to do. Uh, and I couldn't get that job to save my life. Um, I found out that I don't have a very good radio or television voice. Um, the I got into both art history graduate schools and architecture graduate schools. And quite frankly, the decision was fairly pragmatic, which is I really didn't feel like spending the next couple of years with my nose in books. Uh, and I love the idea of exploring through architecture. Um, so I went to architecture school, but but kept taking art history graduate schools. Now okay. the first year dropped out, worked at the Museum of Broadcasting, uh, worked at Metropolis as one of the first editors there. Okay. Um, worked, I was uh, working with the critic Brendan Gill, who was going to restart the uh, Skyline column in the New okay. Yorker. Okay. Uh, did research for him. It was sort of all over the place. So I could never quite make up my mind. Yeah. Eventually, I you know buckled under, got my degree, worked for an architect, and uh, was, you're right, already writing and teaching. And realized that I was actually, that went a lot smoother for me than making buildings. And then <laughs> when I tried to start my own office and it went nowhere, um, I was keeping myself alive, writing and teaching. And pretty soon that's what took over. And the old saying, those who can't teach and those who can't teach, teach Jim and those who can't teach Jim become principals. So <laughs> that's sort of my life career with curating, standing for teaching Jim. Right. And that's how, and then that's how you become an administrator and a yeah, school exactly. director. Yeah. Okay. I've talked to a lot of, for lack of a better term, administrators, museum directors, deans, um, you know, college presidents on the show. Uh, and many of them come from backgrounds in, you know, architecture and design and in history. And I talk to them a lot about how they see institution building, institution running as a type of design project, as a type of architecture. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if you saw it that way also. So you you know, most recently you were director of School of Architecture at Virginia Tech, but you were uh, museum director at Cincinnati Art Museum, president at, at Taliesin. How, how did you see that? How did that architecture background and that history background sort of influence those types of roles that you were in? Absolutely. And I, I saw when I started to think about running institutions, partially because you know, you're ambitious and you think you can do something <laughs> like that, partially because headhunters start coming after you. Um, I had the sense that running an institution was a project. Was, and whenever I went for interviews, which is why I got many fewer jobs than I went to interviews by a factor of about 10, <laughs> uh, I said, well, here's a project. You know, this is what your, in, your institution uh. could do and what I want to do. Now, it was very interesting when I ran my first institution where I was the head honcho, when I was director of what was then the Netherlands Architecture mm -hmm. Institute. Um, the person who became my adjunct director and, and really 
my 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 alter ego and and better half there, a guy called Patrick Vermill, had come into the institution because he had been the management consultant who had brought in what in the Netherlands they referred to as project-based working. Mm-hmm. And project-based working was developed, it, it exists everywhere, but in its Dutch variant, it was developed by Shell. And interestingly enough, they claimed that they looked at architects and one of the first architecture firms to pick it up was OMA. Oh. Um, and the idea was that anything that you did within, and they had already had scenario plan, uh, planning. So within all the scenarios that you're planning out, there are specific projects that are going to uh, allow you to operate in those different scenarios and they're flexible building blocks. So everything you do becomes a project. A building mm-hmm. is a project, a book is a project, an right. exhibition is a project, reorganizing the institution itself is a project. And every project has a clear starting memorandum, a clear idea of what you want to achieve, why you want to achieve it, how you're going to achieve it, who's going to do right. it with you, uh, what the budget and timeline is. Yeah. And so I became very enthusiastic about that and really began to see uh, my job uh, as a project, but a project that itself was an accumulation or assemblage, if you were, of different projects. And whenever interviewers ask me about my, you know, what is your management style? Yeah. Uh, that's what I would say, which of course, you know, nine times out of 10 sent me straight out the door. <laughs> But also got you some pretty good jobs. So like, you know, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um talk to me about that, what you were just saying about this sort of project-based work with sort of the intersection of the operations of running an organization, hiring people, budgets, uh, you know, make keeping the wheels on with your own research and scholarship and intellectual interests because you're you're running cincinnati art museum you're running school of architecture taliesin you're also writing books you're curating shows how do those start to fit together or how did you sort of think about the relationship between those um again i i see my life as an assembly of all these different things i never thought it was particularly difficult to do these different things at the same time obviously mm-hmm. there were times when different projects crashed into each other um and uh it became uh, a little hairy um and that that caused some some problems uh i, I won't deny that but in general for me um my my rhythm used to be that I would get up at six o'clock in the morning and work for a couple of hours on whatever project I was doing that was not mm. the art museum, the institute, the school, and then get to work and work however long I need to. And if I need to continue to work in the evening, my only rule was to stop working by nine because if I didn't do that, then I'd be up half the night. I'm not one of these you know executives who claim I don't need any sleep. I need lots of sleep. But uh, doing different projects actually kept me intrigued and busy and 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 happy. I'd say the, the one thing that I wasn't counting on is that um, doing a book or a building or an exhibition or 
a Biennale is a project that you can uh, carry out in collaboration, but it has a, a clear product, if you will, clear goal. Mm. Whereas running an institution involves people. And that was the most difficult thing, not only is managing and working with and, and collaborating with people more than managing uh, very, very difficult, or at least for me, it's, it, it, it's very difficult. Uh, maybe I know some people for whom it's a breeze, um, but the, the emotional reverberations of that um, extend beyond the book or the cure mm -hmm. or the, the exhibition. So when you're writing a book, you're writing a book and it's very intense and it, it eats you up, but you finish the text or whatever it is and right. you cook dinner. Whereas you come home from people being nasty to each other or people being weird or just the, the difficulty, the, uh, on the other hand, people, the the joy, but also the pain of trying to work with people and help people who you know are are very good, but who are encountering problems, right. and that remains with you. And I, but that's something that in all my thirty years of running stuff, I was never able to figure out how to contain is the the kind of intensity of the human relations part that comes with institutions. Do you think that the, those experiences have changed how you write or how you look at history or how you look at that sort of intellectual work that you do? I mean, it's, it seems like being, being in that, being in the positions you've been in, dealing with those types of things gives you a different perspective when you're looking back at history um, you know, and you're you're writing about different architecture offices or whatever, or you're looking at how projects are built and made. Um, do, do you think that's changed you as a writer or as a thinker at all? Um, I think it's more the other way around, which is that my my writing and curating have um, in influenced inflected the way that i've uh, run things um and not always for the good because i would get very enthusiastic about grand ideas or uh, conundrums or contradictions yeah, yeah. which is what this book is full of and how fascinating they were and people were saying yeah but you know we've got to open the doors and we have a community that we have to work with and that community is looking for something don't come to us with these grand ideas and conundrums help us figure out how we're going to work with this community and yeah, so that, yeah that's, that's all it's, it's more that other way we mentioned already in this new book it, it is not just architects it's also artists poets um thinkers and you spent almost 10 years as director of the cincinnati art museum and you know kind of rooted in the art world more than the architecture world, uh, at least for that time. And talk to me a little bit about the overlap between the art world and the architecture world. I'm even thinking about your time at, at a, you know, school of Taliesin. When you started there, you said that, you know, your goal was to make that the best school for experimental architecture in the world. 
And, and even that, that idea of experimental architecture seems like it's sort of dipping its toes into mm -hmm. these other worlds. Um, we don't often see them as, as the same, you know, we, we see those as two separate, where do you see them coming together? Or what can we sort of, yeah, that's, I mean, I think part of my problem is that I don't see them as separate. And okay. Talk, yeah, that, yeah. That for me, all these attempts to make sense or make sensible uh, modernity are just exactly that. And some of them have to be, happen to be carried out with a paintbrush, some of them with a dance step, some of them with uh, by nailing some two by fours together. And ultimately, I think the best ones. Do I want to say the best ones? Well, the ones that have fascinated me most are the ones that actually um, do all of it and mm -hmm. and mix it all together. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by the work of the Theaster Gates of this world and yeah. uh, these kind of hybrid people who. Um, are not really interested in being classified as one thing as the other. They just do what they think is what they need to do as critical makers. Um, and, and that's become a very fashionable phrase. Yeah. But at least it avoids the the kind of discipline specificity. I mean, I'm the same way. And I think that's probably why I'm drawn to your work and why I'm drawn to this book and, and, and this conversation. And I think you know, maybe, maybe my question, maybe the question behind that question is my perspective in an edu in educational systems. Uh, there is a desire to, to narrow down, to not blur these definite, you know, there are different departments and those departments are organized separately and there's only so much space for collaboration. How do you, how do you think about, you know, in your time running schools, dissolving these borders, just oh, it's, making it's critical makers? Oh, it's the worst problem. Um, <laughs> in every single job I've had, uh, and luckily I'd say um, in my first job as curator at SFMOMA, I had a director who was very interested in and fostered that kind of collaboration. We did did great projects. Mm -hmm. When I came to the Netherlands Architecture Institute, one of the great achievements of uh, this guy, Patrick Famille, I referred to before, mm -hmm. was that working with the people there um, he had managed to get the break down the final barriers between what had originally been three different in institutes that had been merged into one about 10 years before I got there, eight years before I got there, mm. until about a year or two before I got there. Apparently, there were still, you know, pitch battles between the archives and the museum people, et cetera. Yep. And by the time I got there, that was largely gone, luckily. And and I furthered that um, by by doing more interdisciplinary things. But when I got to Cincinnati Art Museum, yeah, it was one of the biggest problems there. And of course, in academia, the version of that is tenured faculty who mm -hmm. have one particular thing that they do. They do it the way they like to do it, the way they believe is right, the way they are used to doing it. And um, it turns out, and this has been, you know, a learning, if you will, for me, is that we all talk about collaboration, but most people uh, don't want to do it. And so figuring out how uh -huh. to get people to collaborate is one of the, the toughest things, one of the toughest tasks that you have as an administrator. Can you maybe talk about this at like a student level also? You know, how do, 
is there a way, you know, students studying architecture or they're studying graphic design? How, how do we, how do we teach within like an institutional setting that has these departments, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, critical makers? How you just, you just teach it. And that's what I've always done. And it was great. You know, I'm doing this fun project. Um, I had this great experience this last summer where I wound up through a series of circumstances uh, driving through Europe for a week and a half with a former student from Taliesin. Okay. And having these wonderful conversations, which we have now continued um, in letters, which maybe we will even publish at some point. Uh -huh. But what's great is that in these letters, there, and there's actually two of them now who are part of it, they're quoting um, Sartre and they're quoting literature and paintings they've seen. Uh, and, and just as we're speaking, I'm trying to not get distracted by texts that are coming uh, up from uh, another uh, student who is actually never a student of mine, but was a student of industrial, is a student of industrial design at Virginia Tech. Mm. Brilliant young guy who his references are all over the world. They're in fashion, they're in art, they're yeah. in literature. I mean, he, for a guy who's not yet 20, he seems to have read and seen everything. It's rather remarkable. And I told him, you know, the chances that you're going to become an industrial designer in the traditional sense of the word are, from my perspective, not very high. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you really want to do that. And he he sort of laughed and agreed with that. I mean, the 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 what I encourage in my students is exactly that kind of uh, transdisciplinary view and looking at everything. I, I like to tell my students uh, uh, that architecture is first and foremost a way of looking. Mm. It's a way of looking at the world around you and training your eye and getting the background knowledge to be able to see within the world that surrounds us, the social, economic, political, geographic structures that shape have shaped it and continue to shape it and then figure out what to do within them, whether that's with building or any other mode. I I love that. I have two more questions um, to, to wrap up. You mentioned already that you're working on a new book, maybe two new books. Uh, you mentioned two different books. It sounds like in this conversation, what's, what are you thinking about right now? Or like, what are, what are the sort of the issues or the topics that are consuming your thoughts now? And how are those sort of my making their way book. into new projects? So my next book, uh, which will be published uh, this fall by Beacon Press uh, is called uh, Don't Build, Unbuild. Uh -huh. Uh, and it was originally called Just Don't Build. Uh, and the idea is that we have more than enough buildings and we need to stop making new buildings. We need to reuse, rethink, upcycle what mm -hmm. we already have, but we need to do it in a way that is critical, that opens up, that preserves the past in order to open it up for future uses that is sustainable in a truly deep manner, but that is also open and just and beautiful. And I call it imaginative reuse. Mm -hmm. So that will be out this fall. The book that I'm doing with Assemble Studio will be published by Timson Hudson, I hope next year. And uh, I am trying, if there are any publishers on uh, listening to this, 
I'm trying to place the uh, monograph, which doesn't exist, on the work of Lemius Woods. I've been uh -huh. working with his widow, Alexandra Wagner, for about a year now, trying to shape a project uh, that will finally bring together his projects into a single volume. Um, and then I have some other projects I'm working on past that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I love how both of those projects are very related to this new book, which just goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, even when you were sort of running institutions, you were always sort of seeing them as the same and sort of in dialogue with each other. It seems like all of these things are building on each other in a... I hope so. Yes. Yeah. In a smart way. My last question, which sort of relates exactly to that, what are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading right now? Uh, I hate that question because the truth is um, that well, I'll tell you one thing I'm rereading because the student was quoting uh, Sartre's Nausea I went back I hadn't read it since I was in yeah. college so I just have the last 10 pages left on that but I have to say that um, with my recent move and everything else I'm doing the one thing that has frustrated me is that if you ask me what I'm reading right now, it's probably Facebook, Instagram, and uh, The Economist, uh, and various other news feeds. Uh, I really haven't had a time, um, which if my parents who are both literature professors were alive today, they'd be rolling around in, well, they're not alive, so they're rolling around in their grave uh, because I'm, I've fallen so, so far from the a book a week at least from my mother, I think it was a book a night uh, wow. schedule that that one that a good good boy like me should have. Uh, but I also, of course, in this day and age, uh, the question could also be, what are you watching? Yeah, uh, yeah. This is just as you know opportune. Uh, but unfortunately, because those are all mass media, we're all watching the same thing. You know, we're all watching right. the latest issue, the latest season of True Detectives, mm -hmm. and. Uh, 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 Fargo, right. uh, still thinking that someday I'm going to get up the gumption to, as an old fart, write an essay on Euphoria and how it is the most fundamentally important work of art of the last five years. Um, I love but it. I am watching those kind of things. I love it. I also love the new season of Fargo. I also love, uh, to be honest, like, yes, your parents might be rolling over in their graves, but it makes me feel better that you can be as productive as you are and still spend a lot of time on Facebook and Instagram. It makes me feel that my my Instagram scrolling maybe isn't, <laughs> isn't that bad. This was great. Your new book is called The Monster Leviathan and Architecture. I really, really loved it and really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that was my conversation with Aaron Betsky. It was recorded on January 29th, 2024. Our theme music is by Jeremiah Chu. The show is and always will be free, thanks to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you like what we are doing here, I hope you consider supporting us and get some bonus content each month. You can follow us across social media at Surface Podcast, and you can listen to all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.